You can have a seat. Good morning. I'm Pastor Tim. Great to be with you. Kids, if you did not get a, an activity page on the way in, or teens or adults, you need some help staying connected this morning, slip your hand up. Um, we got some activity pages, some outline. There's an outline in your bulletin on Family Sunday. I always do fill in the blank to make you work a little bit. So grab a pen or a pencil. Make sure you got uh, something to color and write with and follow along. As, as we're handing those out, you see a skyline here on the screen. Anybody want to take a guess? What, what city is this skyline? Anybody have a guess? Shout it out if you think you know. We got a vote for Chicago. Anybody else? Philadelphia, Chicago, Philly, anybody else? All right, how about these next pictures? Kids, does this help you out at all? Anybody know what city this is? Same city as the first slide. Does this give you a hint? What do you guys think? Shout it out. Philadelphia. It is Philadelphia, right? We got the, um, go back, go back one if you would, please. We got the Liberty Bell, right? We got the famous statue, the Eagle Stadium, the original State House, and of course the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art, the famous Rocky Steps, right? Um, so yes, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Um, many of you know Philly, have worked or visited to Philly. Many of you know that that name, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Where did the city get that nickname? Anybody know? The origins, of course, of, of Philadelphia, like many cities on the East Coast, go back hundreds of years. And the Europeans settled the Delaware Valley. They pushed out the Native American tribes that were there. The English eventually took over that region in the 1600s. The land was eventually gifted to William Penn by Britain. And it was named Pennsylvania after William Penn's family. It wasn't until 1701 that the city on the Delaware River was officially chartered and became known as Philadelphia, meaning the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. Penn, William Penn was a Quaker. He had a deep, genuine Christian faith. Seems to have chosen the name because it was his heart, his vision, knowing the biblical meaning He had aspirations that this city would be a place of religious liberty and peace. And he purposely chose this lofty name, which, depending on your perspective, uh, the city may or may not live up to that lofty name, right? Of course, if you're at an Eagles game in the Eagles stadium, it definitely does not live up to the name. But some parts of it, maybe, maybe it is still the city of brotherly love. But that word Philadelphia is a Greek word, comes from the Greek New Testament. William Penn chose it for that reason. Philadelphia is a compound word. Kids, first word phileo, second word adelphos. Phileo meaning love, adelphos meaning brothers. The word brothers there in the Greek is actually a broad term can refer to brothers and sisters, siblings actually in a family. Now when used outside of the New Testament, this word Philadelphia always is used to refer to siblings in a family, the love that brothers and sisters have for one another. But in the New Testament, the word Philadelphia occurs six times and it becomes a technical term. And the New Testament authors never use it to describe biological family love. They always use it exclusively to describe Christian sibling love for one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the love and affection that we share as believers. A distinct type of love with one another. Yes, we love the world, but Philadelphia is a different kind of love, a distinct love that we have for brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We're going to read one of the instances where Philadelphia is used this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4. Go ahead and pull it up on your Bible or your phone. I still see some Bibles on the tables in the back. So if you don't have a Bible, I promise you this morning's message will make a whole lot more sense if you're able to see the text in front of you. So grab a Bible, follow along with us as we continue in our series, Faith in the Gospel. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 9 to 12, we're on page 987 if you're using one of those blue hardback Bibles. We read last week that because of our faith in the gospel, we're charged to walk in a way that pleases God, to grow in holiness, what we call sanctification. Specifically, we heard the charge last week to flee from sexual immorality. And in the verses this morning, we're going to hear the charge to love and to live. That's our big theme, to love one another and to live rightly before a watching world. And again, you can follow along in the outline in your bulletin or on the opposite side of the coloring page. Don't miss the the outline in the scriptures, by the way, on the back side of the coloring page. And we're going to hear this morning that theme to love and to live. Now look, the words that Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote to the Thessalonians are just as relevant today as they were all those years ago because the culture of the 21st century is not all that different from the culture of the first century. And now, as then, a life that's characterized by personal purity, by love for one another, and responsible living will set Christians apart. It will set us apart from a secular world that is watching. And so I'm going to read these verses. I'd love for you to follow along with me. The Word of God says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So we're going to start with verses 9 and 10. You see the blanks there in our first point in your notes. And I'm going to leave you in suspense uh, for the time being. But verse 9, Paul opens up this section saying, Look, you don't need anybody to write to you about brotherly love. And then, of course, he goes on to write to them about brotherly love, right? It's like when you're in a meeting and you say... Does anybody have any input or questions before we move on? And, and that one guy says, no, I don't have any questions or, or input. But before we move on, can I just say, right? It's like he says we're not going to write to you about brotherly love. And then he does it anyway. He writes to them about brotherly love. But his point is this. I don't need to go into deep depth or explanation about what love is. What Philadelphia is. I don't need to go, go into date, great depth because you've already been taught about this sibling love. Right? And that's our first big point this morning, is that, is that we are called to love your siblings in Christ. You can go ahead and flip over your page. Go ahead and flip over your page, and you can write in the first blank, love your siblings in Christ. Right? He says, he says you've already been taught what it is to love your siblings in Christ. You've been taught to love one another. Now this phrase, he says, you've been taught by God. That, that phrase, taught by God, is actually another compound word in the Greek. You have been God-taught. It actually says there in verse 9. Paul seems to have kind of invented this word, the only place in the New Testament where it appears. The combination of God and taught. And he's saying, look, I don't need to write to you about sibling love for your fellow believers because you've been God taught. And he's using there the word agape, the most common word for love in the New Testament, usually understood as divine love. 
See, ultimately, he says, you didn't learn about this kind of love for Christians by listening to a lecture or watching a YouTube video. The Holy Spirit of God has impacted, spoken, and driven this kind of love into your heart. In the previous verse of 1 Thessalonians 4, we've been told that Christians have been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to send us the Holy Spirit to bring us to truth. The Spirit is the one that teaches us about love, that fills us with love, that shows us how to love one another. Romans 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, the Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts when we have faith, teaches us about a love that Jesus Himself lived out for us. A love that's that's based on on a radical redefining of both love and family. See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, I don't know if you knew this in the Gospels, but Jesus' mom and brothers and sisters were concerned about him. Like, they didn't understand what he was doing. Traveling around with these strangers, large crowds, teaching these controversial things. At one point, they actually thought, Jesus, you're out of your mind. And they went to go rescue him. There's a story in Mark's gospel where they show up at a house where Jesus is teaching and the house is packed full of people. They think Jesus is out of their mind, out of his mind. He's not taking care of himself, you know, following all of these crowds. Is he eating? Is he sleeping? And they want to go and they want to rescue him. And so they send in a messenger, go inside and tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside looking for him. And they go in and they tell Jesus as he's in this crowded house teaching and Jesus stops and he looks around and he says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And he looks at his closest disciples. And he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus has this radical redefining of family that would have been revolutionary and and, and controversial in the first century. That, That our brothers and sisters are now fellow believers in Christ. Those that walk with God, that do the will of God. We now have a connection with people that some of whom we've never even met. I remember that last summer we were at a water park and I go in and I see this guy's name tag and I just pointed at him and I said, Peniel, face of God. And he gets this big smile and I said, you know what that means, don't you? He says, yes, face of God. I said, yeah, book of Genesis where Jacob wrestled with God and met the face of God. He said, how did you know that? I said, I'm a Christian. He said, I'm a Christian as well. I said, where are you from? And he shared with me about how he was born in Ethiopia. And we talked about him coming to the country. We talked about uh, our faith. We encouraged one another. And we, we, we shook hands. There was a brotherhood, right, in this little five-minute meeting. And we encouraged one another to keep the faith. And someday I'll see that brother again, my brother in Christ. Jesus radically redefines the idea of siblings and love for other siblings. Because Philadelphia now doesn't just mean or doesn't even primarily mean love with your biological brothers and sisters. It means love for your siblings in Christ. Now look, Jesus doesn't totally dismiss the importance of, of, of family, right? So, so kids, if you're sitting there today, oh good, I, ne- I don't like my sister anyway. She's super annoying. Jesus says, I, I only have sisters in Christ. No, no, no. He doesn't dismiss biological family. He builds on it and adds to it. Because see, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have been forgiven We've been born again. We've been adopted into God's family. And so if, if God is our Heavenly Father, and you and me both call God our Heavenly Father, guess what? Now we're brothers and sisters. We've been adopted into God's family. And as, as Sybil likes to remind me, I'm the best dad in the world, but God is the best dad in the universe, she says. 
And she also likes to remind me that, that she's my sister. That we're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? This radical redefining of our relationship with one another. This is what Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35. This verse is in your notes, kids. Why don't you fill in the blanks as we read together? Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, my students, if you have love for one another. And so Jesus calls his followers, his fellow brothers and sisters, by the way, we get to call Jesus brother as well, to love one another. This unique, distinct, Philadelphia kind of love in the family of God. And we love one another, what does Christ say? As I have loved you. See, that's the part of this that's a new commandment. God's people had been commanded for years, for generations, to love one another, to love their neighbor. But Jesus now says, no, in the church, in the Christian family, you now love one another as I have loved you. Sacrificially, selfishly, selfishly, excuse me. Just as Christ laid down his life for us, we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This kind of Philadelphia sibling love in Christ. Now, Paul, we see in the letter to the Thessalonians, is confident that they have already understood this. They've been taught by God. Now, how does he know that? What does verse 10 say? Look at verse 10. He knows that they understand the concept of Philadelphia love. Why? Because they're loving the brothers and sisters, not just in their own church. He says, but across the region of Macedonia, outside of their city, local churches that they had connected with, much, I guess, like we connected with, with people from other churches last weekend at the men's retreat. He says, your love has been demonstrated. It's been seen. Now, we don't know what they were doing. They were praying, I'm, I'm certain of. Maybe they were sending letters or visiting, encouraging one another's faith. Maybe they were meeting practical needs of other Christians in their region. He says, I've seen your love. I know, I know the way you're loving the churches in Macedonia. See, true love, listen to this, can be seen. True love must be lived. If you don't live love, then I'm sorry, but you don't have love. If it's not demonstrated, kids, you can't say you love mom and dad. You can't say you love your siblings. You can't say you love your your friends who also love Jesus if we're not living it out. So here's my definition of love. I've shared this with you guys before. My best attempt to define what I think is often a very abstract term. I define love as a deep passion, a devotion, an affection for another person that's ultimately, as Christians, rooted in Christ's love, that's driving you to sacrifice yourself for their well-being, even when it's not deserved, with no expectation of personal gain. See, the world certainly has a concept of love, of affection, right? But too often it's given, love is given when it's deserved, love is given where there's an expectation of getting something in back. But if we love as Christ loved us, that means we love when there's no expectation of personal gain. We love even when it's not deserved. Husbands and wives, you love one another when you're grumpy and irritating. Kids, you, you love your siblings even when they're being difficult and won't give you the remote. Friends in life group, you, you, you go and you love even when you can't connect and can't identify with what the other person is going through. See, to love as Christ loves means that we take initiative. It means just as Christ came down to us, it means that we go out to others. We take a step. We go towards people that are hurting, that are in need, that maybe we don't even connect with. I love that beautiful story, Joseph, that you shared. 
you know, a friend, a brother in Christ you hadn't seen for five years, but you knew it was heavy on your heart that there was something between you. And so you went out. It sounds like you went out to each other to love as Christ loved, to reconcile, to forgive each other. You don't wait around. Well, I'll wait till he says he's sorry. I'll wait till she comes and, and, and calls me. I don't know why we haven't spoken for a month, but, but if she wants to speak, she'll call me. No, Christians follow the example of Jesus and we go out to our brothers and sisters. It means you give of yourself. Yes, we love in words. Yes, we love in deeds, but we love with ourselves, with our very lives, our hearts. It means that you forgive one another. You serve one another. It means that you love, your love for others is free. No strings attached. You're not looking for personal reward, not waiting for somebody to ask you before you serve them or love them. Love in Christ means patience and kindness. It means that we're not envious of others. We're not arrogant or rude. We don't insist on our own way. We're not irritable. We're not resentful. Love in Christ is gracious. It's humble. It's selfless. It's faithful. Loving our siblings in Christ means meeting practical needs. It means emptying the dishwasher. Not that that's an issue in my house, but it means emptying the dishwasher, right? Before you have to be asked because you're serving a practical need. Showing love to your mom, your dad. It means stepping up and helping watch one another's kids, right? Man, that's one of the biggest blessings you can do for a young family is say, I'll, I'll come by, I see some heads nodding, you know. I'll come by, I'll, I'll stay at the house for two hours. You guys go out, do whatever you want. That's love. Love is making a meal, is lending someone your car. Somebody in this church, I drove their car to church because my car is in the shop. They dropped it off at my house last night so that I could get here. Love is giving financially to those in need. It's meeting practical needs, but it's also meeting spiritual needs. It's listening to one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. Just being there for someone, just caring, just listening, being a servant to one another, being a friend to one another, being a brother or sister. You know, one of the interesting things about friends is you choose your friends, right? You don't choose your brothers and sisters. And you may say, yeah, there's people here in this room that I would never have chosen to be siblings with. But guess what? You both love Jesus. That means friend or not, you're a brother, you're a sister to that person. In verse 10, again, Paul writes, you're doing this. You are loving one another. And so he says, now do so more and more. Now we heard the same thing last week when we wrestled through the subject of, of sexual purity. First Thessalonians 4.1, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Right? And we, we've heard this fall that Paul is not writing this letter to the Thessalonians because their faith is weak and crumbling no no they have strong faith and now he's writing to them to encourage them saying walk in a way just as you are doing do so more and more love in a way just as you are doing do so more and more their faith is strong and he wants them to continue to grow and mature to excel in love to abound in love to grow in love and living hope i would say this to you i have seen your love for one another i have seen your love for me i have seen you come along inside and meet needs i have seen you step up to pray to encourage to meet practical needs and what i would say to you in the holy spirit is now do so more and more continue to do so Let's grow together. Let's abound in love for one another. Spiritually, physically, practically, in small ways, in big ways. Give of yourselves. 
the resources that you have, your time, your talents, your treasures, they're, they're not yours. You're a steward. The Lord has given them to you, and He says, give them freely. Give of your time. Give of your energy. Give of your gifts. Give of your finances to love one another. Now we're going to transition to verses 10 and 11. Kind of the, the second part of this little section. Because Paul writes there, love, love one another more and more, and you see there in verse 11, begins with an and. He's going to give them a second set of instructions. And we're going to see our second point here this morning in verses 11 and 12. He's going to give them some practical instructions for Christian living. You see, because Christianity is not just spiritual beliefs. It's not just abstract concepts. Oh yeah, as Christians, we sort of love one another and it's very pie in the sky and, and abstract. But then, you know, when it comes to practical life, when it comes to jobs and finances and schedules, we sort of figure things out, you know, apart from God. Because He's more like up in heaven. No, no, no. We're about to read some very practical instructions, not just for how to love, but to how to live. And what we're going to fi- find out this morning, and we see our second big idea, is that we're called to live rightly before outsiders. You can fill that in next on your outline. Live rightly before outsiders. Let me read you verses 11 and 12 again. It says, love one another more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now we can kind of divide up verses 11 and 12. We see three separate, very practical instructions, but they all work together and they all describe a common way that Christians are called to live rightly before outsiders. The first thing we read is, says, aspire to live quietly. Now I'm a loud person, so what in the world does that mean? It means seek to lead a quiet life. Don't be loud or obnoxious. Don't seek to draw attention to yourself. It says, secondly, there in verse 11, mind your own affairs. That means, friends, in love, mind your own business. (laughs) Take care of your own needs. Don't get involved unnecessarily in a nosy way in other people and other circumstances that don't pertain to you. Don't be a nosy busybody. What 1 Peter 4.15 calls a meddler. Don't be a meddler. Don't meddle in other people's business. And then thirdly, it says here, work with your own hands. Now, what's interesting is that in in Greek culture, manual labor was considered demeaning. And it was unusual that Christians valued the dignity of all work. Some think from this verse that the church in Thessalonica may have been a blue-collar church. And so maybe this is advice, you know, that Christians should do manual labor. And I see some of you guys out here, Eddie... Tim, Tim Schultz, Harry, Miles, Albert, you know, you guys that, that do manual labor, is this saying like you're somehow more godly because you're following this command to work with your hands? Should, should those that have office jobs quit their jobs? I don't, I don't think so. I think what manual labor working with your hands is honorable in a unique way, but I think the main point here is, is work hard. That's working with your hands, working with your mind, working with some combination of both. Be responsible to take care of yourself. As verse 12 says, so that you don't need to needlessly be dependent on others to meet your basic needs. Now, now we got to set some context here, right? These very specific, in some ways, kind of unusual encouragements, instructions, right? Be quiet, 
Mind your business, work hard. What, what's going on here? Why do the Thessalonians need these instructions? There's a few reasons likely going on in the church in Thessalonica that, that led to this. First of all, because the Christian community was known for being so loving, for taking care of one another, it's possible that some in the community were taking advantage of this and they had become lazy and they were depending upon the charity of others to meet their needs. Instead of working, they were just get going around, getting in other people's business, causing commotion, not being productive in their community. But additionally, as we'll read next week, the Thessalonians have lots of questions about the return of Jesus and the end of the world. And, and some scholars think that, that early Christians, assuming that Jesus was, was going to return eminently, that he would be back any day, well they, well, they thought it's a waste of time to work at a job. Jesus is coming back. And so it's possible that some early Christians sort of gave up on being responsible as, as, as a citizen, as a worker, taking care of their families. But either way, we actually get some insight from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. That some Christians, for whatever reason, had in fact stopped working. They had become idle. They were lazy. They were busybodies. And this had created a burden for the rest of the church. And other people in the church said, well, they're still my brother or sister. Even though they sort of quit their job and now they're just hanging out, getting into people's business, waiting for Jesus to return. They felt obligated. We, we can't let them starve. So they had to meet their needs. But Paul reiterates in, in his first and second letter to the Thessalonians, look, when we were among, among you, we worked hard. And Paul was a blue collar guy. He made tents for a living. And he says, you saw our example, how we used our craft to support ourselves. But this is what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, not in this letter, but the second letter. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, a little harsh. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. That word there means that they're not working hard, but they're wasting their time. They're wasting their energy. Now such persons as we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So here's what we know about what was going on in the church of Thessalonica. There are some people that just gave up on the practical needs of life. They they're, they're, were so heavenly minded, you could say they were no earthly good, right? Now, of course, I want you to hear this, please. This scripture is not talking about people that are not able to work. It's not talking about people that are not able to take care of their genuine practical needs. Widows and orphans and single moms and those that are sick, those that are on disability. Guys, it is good and right for Christians to step up, to love one another by meeting the practical needs of those in our community that cannot do for themselves. In fact, far from being a burden, if you need help from the church you're not being a burden. You're creating an opportunity for us to demonstrate the love and grace of God. You're creating an opportunity for us to grow in generosity and care and practical love for one another. You're a great blessing to our community because you create an opportunity for Christ to shine. And so this is not talking about those that have real need. It's talking about those that are just choosing not to work. And they have become a burden to the church because now the Christian community is forced to take care of them. But it's interesting, he says there in verse, in verse 13, but as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, yeah, there might be people that take advantage of us, but you know what? We're going to keep doing good anyway. And we're not going to let it wear us down. 
So do you you get the picture here? Do you get the call here of what's being described in verses 11 and 12? The call is to walk properly, to walk rightly, to live rightly, to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to live a, a calm life, a quiet life, a humble life. doesn't mean it's boring, but it means that you pay attention to yourself and your family and your church, and you don't become a meddling busybody. Now, no finger pointing, okay? Let's check our own hearts, the ways that we're meddling busybodies potentially. You know, maybe you need to have a hard conversation, but do so graciously. We're called to work hard to provide for our own needs, for the needs of those that, that are genuinely hurting, and not to be lazy. Christians are not to be lazy. Don't take advantage of Christian charity and assume, well, somebody else will pick up the slack. Whether it's your work life, your ministry life, your personal life, your family life. We should not become unnecessarily dependent on others. We should not become a burden to others if we have the ability to be responsible for ourselves. Listen, being a lazy, obnoxious meddler is not exactly a healthy way to contribute to the Christian community. Can we all agree on that? I think about my friend Jerry, where my wife and I lived for eight years in Elkton, a godly Christian man. He got out of high school, and he immediately began hopping in his his dad's truck to ride about an hour north, coincidentally, to the city of brotherly love, to Philadelphia, where his father was working as as a contractor for a concrete company. And he, for the next 20 years began to do that work. Not just any concrete contractor, but, but the company that they worked for specifically did, did contracting jobs for the city of Philadelphia water and waste management. And if you know anything about that industry, it is dirty, hard work. You're working underground the majority of the time, rebuilding sewers underground in the city, re- rebuilding, tearing out old concrete and replacing concrete in the water treatment systems and the gutters and the storm drains below the city, right? The lifeblood of, of the city of Philadelphia. And for, for 20 plus years, he worked hard, most of the time underground, hot and stinky, digging, shoveling gravel, pouring concrete. Fun, fun fact, by the way, some of this, some of, some of you will get grossed out, but apparently there are tomato plants that grow in the sewer systems in Philadelphia. And, and this guy didn't eat them, but apparently some people said, man, you can't beat the juicy tomatoes that grow down there. But that was his life. That's what he gave himself to. He eventually became a supervisor, eventually started running projects for the wastewater treatment systems underground in the city of Philadelphia. When the owner retired, him and his father and his brother bought the company. They became owners of the company. But my friend Jerry, even once he was a supervisor, even once he was an owner, never gave up his shovel, never gave up going underground and and getting the job done. He was worked hard. He had a good attitude about his manual labor. He made a good living for his family. He gave jobs on his crew to other people that needed it. And he honored Christ day in and day out. This is the Christian example that we are called to live. And so listen up. Jesus is calling you today to work hard. Whatever job God has given you is honorable, is valuable when you do it unto the Lord. So kids, your job, many of you right now, is to be a student. That is your work. And maybe a few chores on the weekends. Teachers, whether you're teaching in a school, whether you're teaching children in your home, if you're a a stay-at-home mom managing the responsibilities of the home work hard. 
engineers, mechanics, programmers, accountants, electricians, when we work hard, when we mind our own business and get a job done to God's glory, we honor the Lord, we contribute to the Christian community, and we're living rightly. And see, the call of verse 12, look back at verse 12. It's not just to live rightly so that we don't take advantage of brothers and sisters in Christ, but what does it say? Live rightly, walk properly before outsiders. And here's what we're going to wrap up with. This idea of, of living before outsiders. See, friends, listen. The way we live out our faith impacts those outside the church. How we live will either repel or will either draw non-believers. Now, this term outsider, we've got to talk about this for a minute. Because for some of you, it sounds kind of offensive and demeaning. Outsiders, you know. It's just a description. Four other times in the New Testament... Paul refers to non-believers as outsiders, and it's descriptively accurate. People that are outside the church, that are outside the grace and the love of God. Paul talks in other places about outsiders that come in and visit the Christian worship service. Talks about elders needing to be well thought of by outsiders. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says this, and again, if you're following along in your activity page or the notes in the bulletin, you can fill, fill this in. Colossians 4, 5 to 6 says, Walk in wisdom, in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Christian, it takes wisdom to live in this world. The grace of God, the love of God, the Spirit of God, but it takes a whole lot of wisdom to know what to do, what to say, how to live, how to prioritize, how to be responsible, how to invest, invest appropriately in, in, in work that's needed, that's good, that's right, but also give ourselves to the gospel and to Christ and to live for His glory and, and that balance that we talked about last spring about in the world, not of the world. It takes wisdom to live in such a way that doesn't turn people off, but invites people in. Amen? See, the way of godly Christian lives will be noticed. It will stir people to questions. And, and Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says that we need to be ready to give answers. Because the way that we live, if we're living responsibly and in love, will draw people and they will ask us questions. Why do you have such peace? Why do you have such joy when everybody else is complaining? See, Christians are called to, to love and to live. To love as Christ loved and to live responsibly. We're to be loving. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. And so we honor one another. We defer to one another. We serve and care for one another. We sacrifice for one another. Not just saying we love each other, but living it. And, and we are called to live humble, quiet, responsible lives. Friends, don't be obnoxious. Mind your own business. Don't be a gossip. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a meddler. Don't seek to be the center of attention. Make Christ whom you give your attention to. And make Christ be the one that people see when they look to you. Don't draw attention to yourself. Draw attention to Him. And be responsible. We are called to, to live lives of hard work. Of integrity. Of love. 
And sometimes it's adventurous, sometimes it's exciting, sometimes it's new, sometimes it's conquering a hill, but sometimes it's getting up and going to work and loving your spouse and, and treating your siblings with care and respect and, and, and being a good steward of your finances and being a good neighbor and letting your light shine. Letting Christ work in you. So we're called to love one another, to love our siblings in Christ, to live rightly before God and yes, before the outsiders, before a watching world. And it will be noticed. When we live in love and in integrity and responsibility, it will be noticed. Our lives will shine like a light. People will be drawn to the light and people will ask and we're called to answer. Amen? We're going to sing our amen as the worship team comes. And as they come, hear the words of of chapter 3. Pastor Matt pointed this out to me, that the closing benediction of chapter 3 introduces the themes of chapter 4, the themes that we've talked about today. Stand with me and hear this prayer, this blessing, as we give our amen to the Lord. Stand together and hear this. Now may our God and Father Himself And our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. May the Lord make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Yes, for one another, but also for all the world. So that He may establish your hearts blameless. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. May we be people who walk blamelessly by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, who grow in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Jesus came once for our salvation to bring us into His family. He's coming again to bring us into His kingdom. Let us walk lives of holiness, of blamelessness, of integrity, and of love for one another as we await His return. Amen? Let's sing together.